President Biden paints Republicans as a threat to your wallet. The lead starts right now. The president to make his economic case and say Republicans will crash the economy if they win control of Congress in 12 days. Ahead, the battleground race is drawing him and Donald Trump out onto the campaign trail. Plus, the January 6th committee closing in. New this hour, the key testimony the panel is pursuing, which could be its final act. And the new data that should quiet questions about the U.S. in a recession, but can it stop the Federal Reserve from a new big hike in interest rates? Hello and welcome to The Lead. I'm John Berman, in for Jay Tapper. Just 12 days left now until the midterm elections, and President Biden is sharpening his closing argument. He will speak any moment in Syracuse, New York. You're looking at live pictures. He's going to talk about his administration's efforts to get the economy back on track. He's expected to point to new data showing the account economy bounced back in the third quarter and grew. It grew at an annual rate of 2.6 percent. Biden has recently called the economy strong as hell, and he's trying to convince voters who believe the opposite that Democrats deserve to stay in power in Washington. The president is expected to slam Republicans' economic plans in these remarks, which we will bring you live. CNN White House correspondent Jeremy Diamond is live on the scene in Syracuse. Jeremy, what can we expect from the president any minute now? Well, listen, John, officially President Biden is here to tout those $100 billion in proposed investments by Micron, a semiconductor manufacturing company. But what we're expected to hear from the president is actually a much more political speech. And that is the president is going to be sharpening this contrast that we've heard him draw over the last couple of weeks with Republicans as it relates to the midterm elections, with the president's poll numbers lower than where he would like it to be, polls flashing warning signs for Democrats in very competitive races. The president is going to be warning voters about the consequences of a Republican majority in Congress as it relates to the economy and to inflation. Talking about these proposals to repeal key provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act, for example. Uh, And the president's also going to be doing a very delicate balancing act here, John. He's going to be touting some of these strong new economic numbers out this morning. But at the same time, he wants to show Americans that he understands the pain that they're going through. And he understands that there's still a lot more work to do to get the economy to where it needs to be. Jeremy, this visit is part of a push toward the midterms. Where else is he planning to travel in the next 12 days? Yeah, John, you know, we're 12 days away from the midterm elections. You would expect perhaps to see the president doing rallies in some very competitive states. But the reality is that the president's low poll numbers just don't allow for that. And so what we're seeing instead is a lot of fundraising and also some official events. But nonetheless, the president tomorrow in Pennsylvania to do a fundraising reception. On Tuesday, he'll be in Florida for a political rally. Uh, And then he's headed to the state of New Mexico later in the week. But you hear there not a lot of states where Democrats are running neck and neck with their Republican competitors. Today, though, the president is in a key congressional district that's a very tight race between the Democrat and the Republican. The president hoping that by touting the jobs and the investments here, uh, that will perhaps help put the Democrat over the edge here. John. All right, Jeremy Diamond with the president in Syracuse. We'll head back to Syracuse in just a moment when the president starts speaking. More than 13.8 million ballots have already been cast in this election with just 12 days to go. CNN's Omar Jimenez files this report from an increasingly contentious campaign trail. Midterm tensions on the rise in Arizona. Police making an arrest after a break-in at the campaign headquarters for Katie Hobbs, the Democratic candidate for governor. Authorities not yet providing a name or potential motive for the individual, saying more information will be released Thursday. But Hobbs campaign officials said earlier that they believe the man seen here is responsible and place blame in a statement on her Republican opponent, Carrie Lake, and her allies for inciting threats against anyone they see fit. Lake refuting the allegation and suggested the Hobbs campaign was lying about the break-in. Are you really buying that? This just sounds like a Jesse Smollett part two. Lake referencing the actor convicted of making false reports to the police. This is our problem here. In the Georgia Senate race, Republican nominee Herschel Walker back on the trail today. Texas Republican Senator Ted Cruz stumping for Walker in a show of GOP unity in his campaign bus tour, all amid more scandal. Herschel Walker says he is against women having abortions, but he pressured me to have one. After another allegation that he paid for an unnamed woman to get an abortion in 1993. I am coming forward now 
because I saw Herschel deny the allegations by another woman who claimed that he had paid for her abortion. Walker has denied these allegations. I'm also having to talk about something called the Oz rule. Meanwhile, in Pennsylvania, Democratic Senate nominee John Fetterman's debate performance intensifying the scrutiny on his post-stroke recovery. Fetterman acknowledging the performance head-on. It wasn't going to be easy after you know, having a stroke after five, uh, five months. In fact, I don't think that's ever been done before in American political history. While some supporters express concern the negative headlines will cost him voters. He just seemed very uh, uncomfortable with his answers. And in Wisconsin, attacks from both Senate candidates heating up with neither showing a clear lead in the polls. He said that women don't like the laws of their state, like our 1849 criminal abortion ban, they can just move. Well, in 13 days, women of the state get to help move Ron Johnson out of office. That's, that's why I'm running again. Because our nation's in peril. We're at a hinge point. And you've got one side that is pushing us down that road of socialism. And both of the Senate candidates here in Wisconsin have been calling in reinforcements with Barnes getting ready to do an event here in Green Bay alongside Labor Secretary Marty Walsh before appearing alongside President Obama on Saturday. And Ron Johnson is, is expected to appear alongside national Republicans tomorrow, John. All right, Omar Jimenez live from the campaign trail in Wisconsin. Stay warm and get cold there, Omar. Thank you very much. Let's discuss some of the biggest political threads today. Instead, Herndon of the New York Times, I'm going to come to you first. The president about to speak in Syracuse, and he's going to attack Republicans on the economy. This is something of a pivot, even though the White House would never use these words. Yeah. Politicians don't like to use that word. But the fact that the White House is focused on the economy now, what does it tell you about what they're thinking? I think they're seeing the rest of the polling that we all are. They're saying that the economy is clearly top concern for voters. And for those voters, they, by a good degree, prefer Republicans on that issue. The White House is trying to flip that. They're trying to take that head on and use the GDP report from today to really be able to make that pitch to say that not only uh, do they, you know, will they make the case that Democrats are good stewards of the economy, but that Republicans haven't laid out a plan for what voting for them would do to improve things like inflation. The problem for Democrats is that in midterms, people's vote isn't always about solutions, but expressing frustration about a problem and the party in power. And so for a lot of those voters, they could be voting against Democrats on the economy, but at the same time, Republicans don't need a solution. They just need to be not Joe Biden. Ruby Kramer from The Washington Post. Is there fertile ground to be sown here by the White House? I think so. I mean, I think you're seeing the White House say doomsayers have you know, forecast of a terrible election outcome for Democrats, and they're trying to push back on that and make everybody seem alarmist. But I think the fact of the matter is, you know, Biden is here for an official White House event. He's not here for a campaign event. I think you heard Jeremy say he's going to have a limited calendar um, in terms of campaigning at the top of the ticket with some of the, the key Democrats in this cycle. I bet, and we'll see in a second, I bet, though, he gets pretty political at this event. We'll see when he speaks live. Anna Navarro, I know how you hate drama. Uh, so <laughs> I want to ask you about what's happening in Florida, because the former president of the United States, Donald Trump, has announced he's going to attend a campaign event in Florida two days before Election Day for Marco Rubio. Somehow the invitation to Governor Ron DeSantis got lost in the mail. He's not going to be there. What's going on? Yes, because, you know, Donald Trump is known for being subtle when it comes to sending messages. Look, I, th I think Donald Trump is irritated that Ron DeSantis has not sought out his approval, his permission, his anointment. I think that uh, Donald Trump is irritated that Ron DeSantis is so doing, doing so well in the polls, not only for uh, re-election as Florida's governor, but also for... Uh, 2024, possibly against him. I think what you're seeing in Florida is that regardless of what Donald Trump decides to do, Ron DeSantis is going to run for the Republican nomination in 2024. And also, let's not forget, since we're talking about drama, that everybody in Florida, there's something in the water. Everybody in Florida thinks they can be president, right? So you've got Marco Rubio, Rick Scott, Ron DeSantis, Donald Trump, who all think, not my dog, but everybody else does. And there's no love lost between Rick Scott and DeSantis and Rubio. And, and so I, I think um, I think this is so interesting. I love the political telenovela. Just give me a big vat of popcorn and let all those Floridians fight. What does Ron DeSantis do about not getting an invitation? Do you think he cares? Uh, have you seen his numbers? No, I don't think he cares. I think uh, I think, if anything, it frees him to be able to not owe one to Donald Trump, even though 
That's the other thing that really irritates Donald Trump. Donald Trump believes, and I agree, that large part of uh, Ron DeSantis' political success and the reason he's governor in the first place was Donald Trump's Mm -hmm. support four years ago. That part is true. He was in a very competitive uh, Republican primary against a guy who was far better known throughout the state, Adam Putnam, and Donald Trump got him through as, as governor and as the Republican nominee. And now he turns around this ungrateful, you know, whiny guy and he's not and he's planning on running against me. And he's doing better than me in the polls. And of course, I'm not going to invite him to my rally. Ruby, in Pennsylvania, we were just talking about Donald Trump. Trump is going to go campaign with Mehmet Oz in the days before Election Day. You know, Trump supported Oz in the primary. So that part's not a surprise. However, Oz in recent days, has tried to become this new type of candidate where he's talking about reaching across the aisle. What did, what did you say, the Mitch McConnell magic or yeah, something like yeah, that? Yeah. Um, so could this backfire on Oz having Trump come in? I think it'll be a delicate dance. I think you're seeing some Republicans in certain states, like in New York, um, try to do something similar. I mean, Lee Zeldin, the Republican nominee for governor of New York, was asked during his last debate, would you support Trump in 2024? And he said, you know, I'm not even thinking about it. So I don't know if Oz will take a similar approach, but I think Republicans have found a way to sort of not fully distance themselves from the president or risk his ire, you know, obviously. But um, you're seeing a little bit of that in these really competitive races. Sid Herndon, you do a podcast which is wildly popular and universally loved. Uh, And you had (laughs) I appreciate that. You had a great discussion. Uh, with some conservative voters, and one of the subjects was Herschel Walker. And, of mm-hmm. course, now a, a second woman, anonymous this time, a client of Gloria Allred, has come out and said that Herschel Walker pushed her to have an abortion. But you spoke to some conservative voters. What did they tell you about this? Yeah, I, I, I mean, it was really interesting. Our episode this week is about grassroots Republicans and just what they want to push the party on. And we weren't talking to swing voters. We wanted to talk to the base because that's who, who we know these candidates and Donald Trump are most responsive to. And when we push people about Herschel Walker specifically, they were not shy about the contradictions in both uh, uh, not supporting abortion and then backing Herschel Walker. What they articulated was a clear understanding of power that they know that they have a binary choice. And for them, they think that the uh, 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 supporting, not supporting Walker is a tacit vote for Democrats. And no matter what Herschel Walker did individually, they find that to be unacceptable. And a lot of times we see that people think voters are really passive about this, that they are voting for someone in spite of those concerns. The voters we talked to very much knew what they were doing. They still, though, because they did their dislike of the other side is so strong that did not weigh into their calculus. They were still backing Walker and rather enthusiastically also. So, uh, but, but, you know, I, I, I think it's, um, it's such a change from 2016. And I think 2016, we can't underestimate just how much 2016 changed yeah. the political landscape. Listen, I remember 2016. We all remember. Uh, October, Access Hollywood tapes get revealed and people start canceling events with Donald Trump. And they're saying that they've got to go pray about what they're going to go do. And remember, he was going to Wisconsin, in fact, and, and things get canceled there. And Paul Ryan canceled things. Nowadays, I mean, they, didn't, they didn't take three seconds to say, we don't care. We want the majority and the U.S. Senate. This is not a problem. We have no qualms about it. We're, we're with Herschel Walker. I think Donald Trump lowered the bar so much that literally right now all you can do is look up down at the bar and step over. You don't even have to, uh, you, you know, do the limbo rock. It's hard to think of one single example from the last year, year and a half or two years of a Republican saying, you know, actually, this was too too much for me. I, I can't support the ticket. I Mm-hmm. I agree well, with that. Well, I think because for evangelicals, that transaction with Donald Trump worked. Yeah. They got those Supreme Court mm-hmm. justices in, which led to that overturning, which was their main goal. All right, That's friends, true. thank you very much. A great discussion. Really appreciate it. Ahead, two battleground races that often don't come up in conversation, but the results could rock election night. Plus, new reporting this hour on the January 6th committee. Members are pursuing testimony that could close in uh, on former so President Trump. A lot of these people are not going to be back in Congress. All right, you're about to show you some live pictures from Syracuse, New York, where President Biden is set to speak. He's going to tout what he believes to be White House accomplishments on the economy, and we expect lean into Republicans. Let's listen. He understands the value of our workers in the United States and that we've always, as workers, stepped up to help our communities and our country and uh, that, that the workers of this country should be uh, 
respected, and as well as the unions in this company, in this country, excuse me. So he made some promises uh, when he got elected, and uh, I remember some of these promises. They're written down on this paper here, so let me go ahead and read those. All right, we'll come back to this in a second. For a moment, though, our politics lead. CNN uncovering significant developments today in two of the investigations surrounding former President Donald Trump. We have new insight into where the January 6th committee is heading next with its probe. Also, members of Trump's legal team and Justice Department lawyers meeting in secret today in Washington over the Mar-a-Lago documents case. Let's go first. Well, CNN's Jamie Gangel is with us, Caitlin Collins with us as well, as well as CNN's senior legal analyst, Ellie Honig. Jamie, I want to start with you on this new reporting on the January 6th committee and the Secret Service. So, John, first of all, I want to say this was the team effort, Annie Grayer, Zach Cohen, Whitney Wilde, all working on this. We have learned that the January 6th committee is wrapping up its review of more than a million pages of Secret Service documents And it is now begun to schedule interviews to bring in top Secret Service agents, former agents, and officials from the agency. They are expected to testify in the coming weeks. We know that the committee has previously said it intends to call back two key witnesses, former Secret Service Assistant Director Tony Ornato, who you see there, uh, the Trump's lead Secret Service agent on the day of the attack, Robert Engel, But in addition, we're told the following other witnesses are under consideration. Kimberly Cheadle, the new Secret Service director. Anthony Guglielmi, I hope I pronounced that correctly, who is the Secret Service's chief of communications. He was just appointed in March and was not at the agency at the time of the attack, but he has handled key responses to the committee. Also, Timothy Giebels, who is the head of former Vice President Mike Pence's detail on January 6th. And finally, the driver of former President Donald Trump's SUV in the motorcade. His name has never been publicly disclosed. So, John, our understanding is the committee has a lot of questions for these potential witnesses, including, of course, what the Secret Service knew about those threats to Vice President Mike Pence and lawmakers ahead of the attack. You may remember in the October 13th hearing, uh, the committee had uh, found out the Secret Service received an alert of online threats. These were made before the attack against then-Vice President Pence, including the words that he would be, quote, a dead man walking if he doesn't do the right thing. And finally, CNN has learned that according to a source familiar, John, this is quite incredible. Pence and his team were never briefed on those threats, I was told today, Hmm. and they only learned of them when they were made public during this month's hearing, John. Pence and his team never briefed. All right, Ellie Honig, CNN senior legal analyst, let me bring you in here. We've heard a lot about the Secret Service in the January 6th committee hearings. Cassidy Hutchinson saying uh, that a former aide to Trump chief uh, to the Trump chief of staff, Mark Meadows, testified at a committee hearing in June that the president was irate and physical when the Secret Service detail refused to take him to the Capitol. Then we learned about all the wiped and missing text communications. What does it say to you that now, after this, the committee still thinks it needs information from the Secret Service? Well, John, there's a couple really crucial legal issues here highlighted by Jamie's reporting and that of her colleagues. First of all, nobody has access to the president quite like the Secret Service. And one of the big questions we still have is what exactly was Donald Trump doing and saying? What was his state of mind as the attack unfolded on January 6th? Cassidy Hutchinson gave us her perspective on that. And we'll see, and I believe they will, whether the Secret Service testimony will support that. And the other big question is what was done with all these threats that the Secret Service was alerted to? You hit the nail on the head. Why on earth? Earth would Mike Pence's team not have been alerted? And I think that's what the committee is digging into. And let's keep in mind, even though it's end game here for the committee, all of this can make its way into their ultimate report. And more importantly, all of this information can and will be available to prosecutors as they investigate. All right, Jamie, thank you for your reporting. Ellie, stand by for a second, if you will, because I want to bring in CNN's Caitlin Collins with what she uncovered about the Mar-a-Lago documents investigation. Caitlin, What is it? What went on with this secret meeting in Washington today? So what's notable about this is really kind of what we don't know about it. 
But you're familiar with this legal team. We've seen them several times. It's Trump's legal team that is handling the documents investigation. Jim Trustee, Lindsey Halligan, Evan Corcoran. They were seen this morning going into the federal courthouse in Washington. They are the team that is handling the Mar-a-Lago documents investigation. It's not unusual for them to be in front of a judge, but what's unusual is where they were. Because typically we have seen them in Florida in front of Judge Eileen Cannon. We have seen them in Brooklyn in front of Judge Deary, who is the special master. We have never seen this legal team dealing with the documents investigation in a D.C. federal courthouse. And the reason that's significant, of course, is that's where the grand jury, we believe, is investigating you know, more into the criminal aspect of why these documents were taken to Mar-a-Lago. Was there obstruction of justice? What did that look like? And it comes at a really critical time as there have been major questions that the Justice Department still has for Trump's legal team about whether or not all the documents that were marked classified were actually turned over to the government, back returned to the government, not just because of the search that happened at Mar-a-Lago, but also they've been a little suspicious of whether or not they got everything back. And so we have not heard further from the attorneys on this. They did not speak to reporters when they were going in or exiting the courthouse. They were there for several hours in front of the chief judge. So it's really interesting that they were in D.C. today dealing with this issue. All right, Ellie, very quickly to you, the geography of this in Washington, where more of the criminal aspects of the investigation have been happening, including, we think, into obstruction, the significance here. Yeah, here's what we can deduce, John. The fact that they're not in Florida in front of the judge or in Brooklyn in front of the special master tells me this does not have to do with the actual search warrant itself or the special master. It makes sense to me If you have grand jury proceedings, they're going to be under seal. They're going to be private, not open to the public. That's what this is. The judge here, Chief Judge Howell, she's in charge of grand jury proceedings. Grand juries do two things, John. They issue subpoenas and they hear testimony. So this could be about a dispute about the contours of somebody's testimony or a subpoena served on somebody. I think that's the best educated speculation we can engage in here. All right. Ellie Honey, Caitlin Collins, thanks to both of you for this. Let's go right back to Syracuse and listen to President Biden. And, uh, and Mayor Walsh, Ben, thank you, County Executive McMahon. Uh, it's, it's good, you know, it's good to be in a place that means so, so much to me. And that means so much to our country with the project we're here to celebrate today. Governor Hochul, thank you for the passport into the state. Appreciate it very, very much. You've been a great partner to me and a great leader for the state. And you saw an opportunity to attract more semiconductor supply chain b- businesses, and you, and you signed a law to make New York even more welcoming. We were down in Poughkeepsie not long ago, uh, a little outfit called IBM, spending $20 billion investing in, in, uh, in, in incredible jobs, attracting companies, creating jobs. A century ago, this region was the heartland of manufacturing. And when I was up here as a law student, you had Kodak, Corning, General Electric, Governors always believed it could be that way again. She thought that would be the case, and the region is poised to lead the world in advanced manufacturing. Not a joke. Poised to lead the world. And I also want to thank my buddy Chuck Schumer, Senate Majority Leader. This guy gets things done. And a close to a hometown girl, a senator from upstate New York, Kristen Chilibrand. She gets things done. I learned a long time ago, when Kristen calls and asks something, just, get, just say yes. <laughs> just, just do it right away, because you're going to do that anyway. So, good being with you, kid. And look, it's a hell of a delegation. I think it's one of the best delegations in the country, and Chuck is a great majority leader. Getting big things done. We wouldn't be here today. It's not hyperbole. We wouldn't be here today without him. And Kristen's, as I said, hometown here in upstate New York. She's a fighter for families in this area. And you'll be hearing from all these folks in a minute. But Congressman John uh, Katko, where's John? Johnny? Stand up. John is a Republican. And I like him a lot. I like him a lot. John, when I have been in the Congress for a long time, and we used to have, this is how we used to be. We used to work together like you've worked together with me and with the delegation. Thank you very much. I'm quite frankly a little sorry you're leaving. And uh, thanks for what you've done. And thanks for the passport into your district. I appreciate it. And thanks for reaching across the aisle to support the Chips Science Act which this guy wrote right here. We'll talk about that in a minute. 
You know, and we also have one of the leading members of the United States Congress, chair of the House Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff. He came all the way from California to see Chuck. Where, where is he? There he is. Good to see you, Adam. Adam and I talked together a lot. We can't share any secrets with the rest of you, but, you know, we can, we can talk. He's the only guy I can talk to. I'm only kidding. <laughs> Folks, uh, we're here to celebrate one of the most significant investments in American history. Again, not hyperbole. One of the most significant investments in American history. And it's going to ensure that the future is made in America. One of the bright spots around the country. It should give us a sense of optimism and hope about who we are as a nation. And it's part of a broader story about an economy we're building and one that works for everyone. The positions America, it put America in a, win, a position to win the economic competition of the 21st century. And again, that's not an exaggeration. It's literally an accurate statement. We're joined today by the CEO of Micron to celebrate their commitment to invest $100 billion over the next 20 years here in America to build factories to make semiconductors those small little computer chips to power everything in our everyday lives, from our smartphones to our automobiles to washing machines, hospital equipment, you name it. It's the largest American investment of its kind ever, ever, ever in our history. Thank you very much, Bob. They're going to build factories the size of, this is not hyperbole, the size of 40 football fields, big enough to fit the carrier dome four times inside it and still have space left over. And we're going to, this is amazing. What's that going to happen here? You guys have no idea. It's going to run, in, and it's going to run entirely on renewable energy. 9,000 jobs from PhDs and engineers. HVAC technicians, machine operators, with an average salary of $100,000 a year, and tens of thousands more jobs across the supply chain. 20 unions working together to fill jobs for technicians, construction workers, electricians, operating engineers. And by the way, it's the largest investment in American history that's also governed by a project labor agreement. That's a fancy way of saying union. Union, not labor, union. They ensure that the major projects are handled by well-trained, well-prepared contractors, subcontractors, and highly skilled workers. These agreements make the construction a top-notch project because they're the best folks to do it. Their projects are on time, on task, and on budget. Back in February, I signed an executive order to make sure large federal construction projects use project labor agreements. And it means that Micron is using one here as well. Micron's also playing, paying the prevailing wage for funding apprenticeships programs so folks can get trained in places like this community college for one of the thousands of good paying jobs in this new site. And it really matters. It matters a lot. America invested in these chips. Federal in the federal investment helped reduce their cost, creating a market and an entire industry that's American-led. You know, that's how it all started. Over, as a result, over 30 years ago, America had more than 30% of the global chip production. 30%. Then something happened. American manufacturing, the backbone of our economy, got hollowed out. Companies moved jobs overseas from the industrial Midwest, as well as from the Northeast and manufacturing towns like here in central New York and upstate New York. And as a result, Today, we're down to producing only about 10% of the world's chips. We invented them, but only we produce only 10%, despite leading the world in research and design of new chip, new chip technology as well. It's here in the United States. But because of the new law I signed and Chuck designed and delivered, we're turning things way around, around in a very big way. When, with Micron's $100 billion investment alone, we're going to increase America's share of global memory chips and production by 500%. 
The company Intel in Ohio and other companies, including foreign companies that are investing billions of dollars, billions of dollars across America to make these chips here. And it matters to you all, no matter where you live, it matters a great deal. Making these chips in America is going to help lower the cost for families looking to buy a car to replace your washing machine, get a new cell phone. It also helps companies outcompete the rest of the world. And I've got heard from Xi Jinping that he's a little concerned about that. No, I, I'm, not, I'm not joking. It's not, as I told him, it's not about conflicts, it's about competition. And we're back in the game. We're competing again in a big way. Think about it this way. IBM needs these chips to build the fastest quantum computers ever built in the world in Poughkeepsie, New York. Instead of relying on chips made overseas that could be delayed because of a pandemic or some other global supply chain issue, they can get their chips in a few hours, in a few hours. It's a game changer. You know, where is it written? Where is it written that the United States of America can't be the manufacturing capital of the world? Think about this. No, I, I, I mean it sincerely. Where in the hell is it written that says we cannot be, as we've been hearing for the last 25 years, the manufacturing capital of the world? This country lost over 180,000 manufacturing jobs under the last guy that had this job. We've created 700,000 manufacturing jobs on my watch, adding manufacturing jobs at a faster rate than in 40 years. The previous president made a string of broken promises in places like Wisconsin, Indiana, Ohio, where promised investments in jobs and manufacturing never materialized, but layoffs and shuttered factories did materialize. On my watch, we've kept our commitments. On my watch, made in America just a, just, isn't just a slogan, it's a reality, made in America. And today's announcement is the latest example of my economic plan at work. I've said from the beginning that my objective is to build an economy from the bottom up, bottom up and the middle out. An economy that rewards work, not just wealth. An economy that works for everyone. So the poor have a ladder up, the middle class can do better, and when that happens, the wealthy do very well. They don't get hurt at all. They do very well. It's a fundamental shift, and it's working compared to what the very conservative Republicans are offering these days. Let's just take a look at the facts. When I took office, the economy was in ruins. My predecessor was the first president since Herbert Hoover, not a joke, to lose jobs in the entirety of his administration, the first. Unemployment, when I was sworn in, was at 6.4%. Hundreds of thousands of small businesses had closed. The irony is that during the pandemic, the record number of Americans became, at the same time we lost all these small companies, the record number of Americans became billionaires in the middle of this crisis. While more than 9 million people were still out of work from the pandemic when I took office. Today, with the help of the people behind me, we're in a much better place. 10 million jobs created since we took office. A record for any administration in American history. Unemployment is at 3.5%, the lowest it's been in 50 years. 5.4 million Americans applied to start small businesses, the highest level ever in American history. And because of the action we've taken, gas prices are declining. We're down $1.25 since the peak at this summer, and they've been falling for the last three weeks as well, as well, and adding up real savings for families. Today, the most common price of gas in America is $3.39, down from over $5 when I took office. We need to keep making that progress by having energy companies bring down the cost of a gallon of gas that reflects the cost they're paying for a barrel of oil. There used to be a direct correlation. Barrel of oil goes down, the price of the pump goes down at the same time. If we're taking average profits they've been making over the last 20 years instead of the historic profits they're making today, the price of gas would be down an additional 40% to 40 cents today to $3 a gallon. And by the way, last quarter, the five largest oil companies made in the last quarter, $70 billion in profit in 90 days. 
Shell announced just this morning that it made $9.5 billion in profits in the third quarter. $9.5 billion. That's more than twice of what they made in the third quarter of last year. And they raised their dividends as well, so the profits are going back to their shareholders instead of going to the pump and lower the prices. Because if they charge the, the same amount as they, were, as they were acting as they did a year ago and two years ago, when the price of gas goes down, the price of oil, the price of oil goes down, the price of gas goes down. And even though my Republican friends in Congress seem to be hoping for a recession, many of them, present company excluded, Today, the GDP results came out, and the economy, in fact, is growing. In fact, the economy grew at 2.6% rate last quarter. And although it may not feel like it for everyone, people's incomes went up last quarter more than inflation went up. And enough growth. So economic growth is up. The price of inflation is down. Real incomes are, on, going, are up, and the price of gas is down. Folks, continue to spend but now a more stable pace than during our rapid recovery last year. Businesses continue to invest in America. Exports are up, which means we're making things here in America and shipping the products overseas instead of shipping jobs overseas and sending them back here. The supply chains are running more smoothly, helping companies build up inventories. Here's another thing. My predecessor promised, and you heard it for four years, infrastructure week seemingly every week for four years, but it never got done. It became a punchline when you talk about Infrastructure Week. Well, on my watch, we turned Infrastructure Week into the decade of infrastructure and a headline. A once-in-a-generation investment on our nation's roads, highways, bridges, railroads, ports, airports, water systems, high-speed internet. And the American people are seeing the benefits of this economy that works for them. Families have more net worth today than they did before the pandemic. Fewer families are behind in their mortgages, their credit card bills, than they were before the pandemic. More Americans health insurance, more Americans have health insurance than before the pandemic. And we're doing everything we can to give folks just a little bit, and my dad would say, just a little bit of breathing room. We're giving Medicare the power to negotiate lower drug prices. Folks, we've been trying this for as long as I was in the Congress. We pay the highest price for prescription drugs of anywhere in the world. And I'm talking the exact same prescription made by the exact same drug company, sold in the United States and sold in France. You can buy it probably 30% cheaper in France or Canada, around the world. Where's it written that that's okay? Where does it say that's okay to do? We're capping seniors' out-of-pocket prescriptions starting next year. Prescription drugs, and it's the law now, will not have to pay if they're on Medicare more than $2,000 a year for the prescriptions, no matter how much they cost. Even if their drug costs are $10,000, $14,000 a year, like some cancer drugs do cost. <laughs> now, if Big Pharma tries to raise drug prices faster than inflation, they're going to have to write a check to Medicare to cover the difference because there's no rationale for it. Unless they can prove they engage in additional research to improve the product, if it's the same exact product, they cannot raise the price beyond the cost of inflation for that particular drug. And by the way, put this in perspective, last year the price of 1,200 specific prescription drugs went up faster than inflation. We're going to put a stop to that. From now on, if drug companies rise the price faster than inflation, they're going to have to rebate the money back to Medicare. We're also capping the cost of insulin. The seniors on Medicare at $35 per prescription instead of the average $400 a month. Like some are paying now. We passed tax credits to help families buy energy-efficient appliances, put solar panels on their homes, help them buy an electric vehicle, weatherize their home. Things that are going to save, it's estimated by the utility companies, an average of $500 a year for the families, and much more if they were to purchase a vehicle. Yesterday, we announced steps my administration is taking to get rid of unfair hidden fees, 
known as junk fees that are that are proliferating, like surprise banking overdraft fees, an average of $35 for every overdraft, or credit card late fees, an average of $50. Or if you get in a plane and you want your two-year-old child to sit next to you, you're going to find out you paid a hell of a lot more for your ticket when you land, before you land. If you find yourself in a position and it goes on and on and on, all these hidden fees, well, guess what? These can add up and make taking the real money out of the pockets of ordinary Americans. That's on top of actions we took earlier this month to lower the cost of hearing aids, to make them available over the counter at places like Walgreens and Walmart. This is going to save, on average, $3,000 for a pair of hearing aids for millions of Americans with hearing loss. $3,000. I took action to ease the burden of student debt for millions of working and middle-class families. Average, average income, $70,000 a family, recovering from the pandemic. My friends on the right, Republic, they cr criticized the move. But I'm never going to apologize for helping working and middle-class families as they recover from the pandemic. Especially, not to those same folks, who voted for a $2 trillion tax cut before I got in office to give away that mainly benefited wealthy Americans and the biggest corporations. Not a penny of it paid for. And we're doing all this by reducing the deficit at the same time. I don't want to hear about big spending Democrats creating a deficit. Let me give you the facts. The very deficit reduction that my Republicans voted against when they opposed the Inflation Reduction Act. This year, this year, the deficit under our leadership, is falling by $1.4 trillion. Let me say it again. This year alone, the deficit is down $1.4 trillion. In my first year in office, the deficit fell one year, one year by $350 billion. Ladies and gentlemen, the largest ever one-year cut in American history on a deficit cut the deficit in half. As I said, it follows a historic drop of $350 billion last year. And we're going to reduce the deficit by another $250 billion over the de next decade. Why? A big part of that is because corporations are finally going to have to pay something. 15% minimum tax. You know, in 2000, in the year 2000, 55 corporations made $40 billion. God love them, as my mother would say but they paid zero in federal tax. Zero in federal tax. So guess what? The Inflation Reduction Act, we made sure they have to pay a minimum of 15%. That's less than you guys pay as union members in your tax. That's less than school teachers, firefighters, cops pay. But that 15% increase in the, the minimum tax is going to make sure we're in good shape for a long time here. That's all in stark contrast to Kevin McCarthy's Republican leader of the House of Representatives, fellow MAGA Republicans, who say their number one priority is to do the following. And they've said it publicly. By the way, if I had asked you, and we were just walking down the street, you said, can you tell me what the Republican platform is? What they're for? I'm, I'm not joking. I'm being deadly earnest. Like I said, I've been around a long time in public life. Republicans usually always have platforms. Say, this is what we're for. Well, they can't tell you what they're for, but they'll make sure they'll tell you what they're against. They're going to give the power we just gave to Medicare to lower drug prices back to Big Pharma to raise prices instead. The cap on the $2,000 cap on prescription drugs for seniors, gone, if they, Kevin has his way, McCarthy. $35 a month cap on insulin for diabetes for seniors, gone. Savings on health care premiums, $800 a year for literally millions of Americans under the Affordable Care Act, gone. And of course, they're still determined to repeal the Affordable Care Act overall, which would mean that tens of millions of Americans with pre-existing conditions who can't otherwise get insurance will lose even that insurance because they have a pre-existing condition. These protections are gone as well if the Republicans get their way, if Kevin gets his way in the Republican Congress. Tax credits to lower energy bills, gone. Corporate minimum tax, gone. Under the Republican plan, some big corporations are going to go back to paying zero again. That's the plan.
I would argue it's reckless and irresponsible and will make inflation worse if they succeed. And then they're coming after Social Security. Now, it sounds like, you know, what's there's Biden, that's typical Democrats saying Republicans are after Social Security. This is the one thing they've said out loud. They've written it down on pieces of paper. Senator Rick Scott, the Republican from Florida, who's in charge of getting Republicans elected to the Senate, has a plan that's laid out. You can look it up. You can, as my used to say, you can Google it. The plan that Congress will give, will give Congress a chance to cut Social Security, Medicare every five years. Every five years, it's going to be up in the ballot. Either gets voted on or gets lost. Every five years. It's no longer, there's no such thing as a permanent plan. Every five years, you've been paying your Social Security since you were 16 years old on your first paycheck. Senator Ron Johnson, the senator from Wisconsin, he thinks that's taken too long. He wants it done every year. Every year, Social Security and Medicare are in the chopping block. Every single year. And now they put forward a real ticking time bomb for the country. And you're going to hear a lot more about it. Republican leadership in the Congress has said, they made it clear, that if they don't get their way, if I don't vote to shut down, if I, excuse me, if I don't vote to re reduce Social Security and Medicare, if I don't support that, they're going to shut down the government, refuse to pay America's bills for the first time in American history, to put America in default. Again, read this. That's what they're saying. Unless we yield to the demands to cut Social Security and Medicare, they're determined to cut Social Security and Medicare, and they're willing to take down the economy over it. There is nothing, nothing that would create more chaos or do more damage to the American economy than that happening, if it were to happen. Let me close with this. It's been a rough few years for a lot of people I grew up with, hardworking Americans. For a lot of families, things are still tough. But there's some bright spots out there where America is reasserting itself. I've asked CEOs, including Micron and CEOs of many other countries, the following question. When I spoke to the Business Roundtable, spoke to the Chamber of Commerce, National Chamber of Commerce, when the United States government decides to invest considerable resources in new industry, that we need to build up for our national security and economic well-being. Does that encourage or discourage companies from getting in the game? The overwhelming answer is it encourages them to get in the game. Federal investment tracks private sector investment, particularly in those things we need badly. Our national security depends, depends on us having access to the most modern computer chips in the world. It depends on it. One of the things I've been able to do, and I make no bones about it, because of what Russia's activities, we have curtailed their ability to access some of this stuff. And guess what? They're not able to rebuild those devastating weapon systems to take out those civilians in Ukraine as well. Not a joke. It makes a big difference. These things matter. They matter a great deal. And it creates jobs and it creates industries. It demonstrates we're all in this together. And that's what today's all about. I've never, and I mean this sincerely, I've never been more optimistic in my life about America's future. I mean it sincerely. Not because I'm president, but because we have entrepreneurs and people who know what they're doing to lead us to an old and in a completely different era in terms of the kinds of technologies we need, like this man right here. Because I look out at the younger generation. It's the best educated generation, the least prejudiced, the most engaged, and the most least self-serving generation in American history. Look, I hope you feel, I hope you feel what I feel standing here today, pride. Pride in what we can do when we do it together to build a better America, providing our proving it to everyone, to proving to the world that our best days are ahead of us. I know every major world leader because of the nature of my job. And before that, when I was vice president, that was my job. And before that, I was chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. And guess what? There's not a single nation in the world of major nation that wouldn't trade places with the President of the United States in a heartbeat. Not a, no, not a joke. Think about it. Not a single solitary one. 
Not a single one. And I talk to these folks all the time and meet with them all the time. And they want to know, are we going to be okay? Because if we're doing well, they think they got a shot to do well too. And I, that's not hyperbole. That's a fact. But we just have to keep it going. And I know we can. We just have to remember, for God's sake, who we are. We are the United States of America. There is nothing... There is nothing, nothing beyond our capacity. And we're the only nation in the world that has come out of every crisis better than when we went into the crisis. And folks, we're going to do it again. God bless you all and may God protect our troops. And I want to invite my good friend, the great partner, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer to the podium, author of the Chips and Science Act and one of the major reasons we're standing here. Chuck, the podium is yours. President Biden wrapping up a speech in Syracuse, New York, with one of the most aggressive defenses of his administration's economic record to date, coupled with some offense going after Republicans for what he says they will do if they take power back in Congress. He touted his administration's record on jobs, millions of jobs added, hundreds of thousands of manufacturing jobs added, unemployment at 3.5 percent in the GDP released today for the third quarter, growth of 2.6 percent. What he did not talk about very much, of course, was inflation, which is on the minds of so many Americans. So the political discussion will be, will his offense on the things the administration has done well counter the inflation that people are feeling? Coming up on CNN Tonight, Jake Tapper will speak with actress Elizabeth Banks, along with Republican Congressman Dan Crenshaw of Texas. That's tonight at 9 Eastern right here on CNN. And coming up, the warning today of what could be one of the heaviest battles in Ukraine yet. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.